Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network in South Asian Studies. My name is Sharonik Boshu. I am a doctoral candidate in the English department at New York University, and I co-host another podcast called High Theory, which is available at hightheory.net, where we take apart difficult ideas from the academy in very, very short episodes. Today, we are talking about this wonderful new book called Elementary Aspects of the Political, Histories from the Global South by Prothama Banerjee which came out in December last year, published by Duke University Press. Prathama Banerjee is a historian at the Center for the Study of Developing Societies, Delhi. She works at the cusp of history, philosophy, and literary theory. Her previous book was titled The Politics of Time, Primitives and History Writing in a Colonial Society, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2006. Currently, she is engaged in a study of the career of political concepts in India across the ancient, medieval, and modern periods. She asks if it is possible to think across time from within the discipline of history. Banerjee is also involved in a collaborative project on the emergent futures of democracy in the digital and viral age. Welcome to the show and thank you so much for talking to us about your book. Thank you very much uh, to you, Sharonik, and thank you uh, to NBN. It's a wonderful initiative. I'm proud to be on board. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you my very first question, which is, could you tell me a little bit about your intellectual journey and especially the strands that you think culminate in this book? All right. So uh, let me begin at the beginning, as the novelists say. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so growing up in the last couple of decades of the 20th century, my friends and I were deeply immersed in left politics more precisely uh, what we used to call the third left at that time, to distinguish ourselves from the communist orthodoxy, which had little space in its political vocabulary for race, caste, gender, or tribe. So that's really the beginning in my imagination. And yet, while left activism was a hugely learning process for us, it also made us acutely aware of the limits of historical materialism as a framework of thought, not just its narrow economism, which is how materialism translated those days, but also its deeply historicist nature, its dependence on the necessities of history, which we felt was a limit to political imagination. So whence my first book, The Politics of Time, which was a study of modern historical consciousness as it emerged in the colony, both as a formal discipline and as a diffused social sensibility, and went on to discipline the play of multiple temporalities and futures amongst those who were labeled as backward and primitive and underdeveloped and so on. But while this early work deconstructed the modern historical sensibility, 
it did not really ask questions of the political itself. Because like everybody else at that time, I too was confident that I knew what politics was. Except that in the last few decades, I lost that confidence as our pre-given political categories came to be unsettled repeatedly in the face of the digital revolution, ecological crisis, viral circulations, the return of a religion that never in fact went away, the coming into reckoning of non-human and non-life forms, and more recently, of course, the unexpected twinning of democracy and authoritarianism. So already uh, my early experience of Marxism, not only by way of political activism, but also academic training, given that Marxist historiography was really the dominant trend in universities of India at that time, had made it quite obvious to me and my friends that there was a, a kind of a sustained mismatch between the received theoretical categories that we worked with, be it class or capital or democracy or equality, and the actual dynamics of life and politics on the ground. So the more recent twists and turns of politics, globally, really, led me to extend the question that I had asked of Marxism earlier regarding its alienation from actual lives and concrete histories, extend that question to political theory and political philosophy in general. Which is why this particular book came about. This book is actually driven by a kind of critique of philosophy as that traditional meta-discipline, primarily European in its provenance, as we would agree, which claims to explain politics better than any other form of thought in the world. So, as we know, I mean, I write this uh, pretty much early in the book, that we either think politics in the global south through a narrative of great thinkers, Plato, Aristotle, Marx, Foucault, Agamben, or Gandhi, Ambedkar, Tagore, and so on and so forth. Or we think politics through a narrative of universal ideologies, liberalism, nationalism, Marxism, fascism, and ideology being the proxy form in which philosophy acquires the practical life in common spaces, as it were. Well, in other words, uh, I just want to end by saying the specter of political philosophy, which came to me first as packaged in the form of the Marxist canon, haunts politics in the global south, which is why an attempt, which is this book, to kind of ask question of philosophy as a mode of thought itself, which I think is slightly different from uh, what we today call post-colonial or decolonial critique. Uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's not so much about alternative philosophies uh, as about asking whether what other players operate in the field of politics other than philosophy and ideology. So that's where this book comes from, really. So jumping right ahead, in chapters one and two, 
um, you talk about the origin and history of what you call the political man and in the global south, and you use the word man to signal the masculinist origins of modern politics. Sure, sure. Could you give us a could you give us a run through of the genealogy that you that you're tracing here? Sure, but with your permission, uh, could I begin by doing a quick map of the book, which I think will help make sense of what I'm trying to do here. So what I do in the book, in terms of its structuring, uh, is that following modern common sense, uh, which assumes that politics has to do with either political subjectivity or political community or political action or political ideology, or any changing combinations of these, I begin the book by disassembling the modern political into what I call somewhat tongue-in-cheek, really, its elementary aspects, so namely self, people, action, and idea. And then I set out to historicize each of these elements. Now, what I do in that process is that show that even though we take it for granted that politics is about identifiable forms of subject, action, idea, and people, each of these so-called elements are actually queered by an irresoluble historical instability, even a split at its very heart. So then, that is how I kind of, in a sense, uh, uh, install the chapters. I write of each so-called element in a chapter pair. The division between the chapters is meant to highlight the split at the heart of each element. And by demonstrating these historical splits, I argue that the so-called elementary aspects of the modern political are not elements at all. Uh, if by elements we mean the simplest, most indecomposable units that make up an entity. So, for, so to explain this, uh, uh, this kind of uh, writing strategy, as it were, let me take the example of the first chapter there that you mentioned which demonstrates how the political subject, which we assume to be the ground of the modern political, is perpetually split by a tension between renunciation and real politic, asceticism and sacrifice on the one hand, and cynical and anarchic opportunism on the other. Two contrary orientations of the self, which tend to split the subject asunder. But I go on to demonstrate that these two apparently contrary orientations also share what can be called the antisocial disposition. The ascetic enacts an exit from social life in order to return and transform it, and the real politiker holds all social norms hostage to the cause of pure political efficacy. Now, this antisocial location is self-consciously set apart at the time from social reform activism on the one hand and state legislation on the other, which were the two dominant modes in which politics was imagined in those days, both in the colony and in the metropolis. In other words, the question before the political subject was how to produce a self which is simultaneously non-state and non-socially identitarian. 
that is marked by caste, class, race, and gender. Now, in this fashioning of the antisocial orientation via the deconstruction by both the renouncer and the real politicker of household life, kinship mores, and sexual desire, women, both real-life women and godly women, emerge as critical interlocutors and dangerous forces which both make possible and threaten the antisociality of the political man. And because this antisociality is dangerous, it's a dangerous force which can tip over at any time into absolute mastery or pure anarchism, a, a limit condition that is staged repeatedly in political theater of that time, interestingly, and not philosophy. That religion on the one hand and the idea of political philosophy on the other are get mobilized as, in a sense, extra-political imperatives that can stabilize the utter politicalness of the political man. And these imperatives are often embodied in feminine figures, bringing to play a gendered questioning of the political as a sui generis and a kind of autonomous imperative. So that's where gender comes into play in the first two chapters on the political man. So I, what I find really interesting is how you kind of split these what seems to be this commonsensical understanding of the political and first, and this even kind of goes back to your introduction where you say that, you know, like this idea which you grew up with uh, as politics, as the default condition of being, as there nothing being, you know, nothing of life outside of politics, so to speak. And um, again, you do that in the first chapters, which is to kind of uh, look at the, atomic units of the political and then say that, well, this is even further divisible and like um, conflicted. Um, and then you take that, uh, you know, you mentioned the paradox of the political and you take that up in chapters three and four and you discuss the nature of the political and its paradoxical constitution between politics as action and politics of subjectivity. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit on that. Sure, sure. Oh. As is clear to all of us, uh, politics in our mind is activism and political actors are activists. A la Hannah Arendt, politics is free action par excellence as opposed to work and labor, which are driven in her imagination by necessity rather than freedom. Now, in chapters three and four, I show the fundamental untenability of this modern imagination of politics as action and nothing if not action. I show and I argue, and I, I hope persuasively, that rendering politics into action renders life into a form of pre-political passivity routinity, habit, causing the irresoluble binary in modern political philosophy between action and life, event and everyday. In the first chapter of this pair, I show how anti-colonial thinkers of the time were actually asking this question. They were asking, how does one define politics as action 
if the business of life itself is nothing but a ceaseless flow of cause, action, and consequence. So they mobilized diverse strands from pre-colonial philosophical and epic traditions and came up with an imagination of political action as both uncaused, that is, in a sense, free from historical necessity, and non-teleological, very different from the modernization evolution paradigm, a mode of desireless action that valorized action for action's sake, without sake in either historical logic or the result of action as it were. And yet, in imagining politics as desireless and unconstrained, uninvested action, these thinkers perforce returned to the question of subjectivity, with the action question paradoxically becoming secondary to the question of self-fashioning. So, therefore, in the second of this chapter pair, I demonstrate how labor emerges as a model of political action in the 20th century in India, but also clearly globally, precisely because it appeared to resolve this impasse between subjectivity and action. Because labor was meant to simultaneously index the agent and the act, as well as index everyday activity and spectacular revolutionary action. And yet, here too, the subjectivity question returned to haunt the idea of action modeled on productive labor. As, for instance, when Ambedkar raised the issue of the particular body of the degraded, untouchable laborer in order to interrogate the status of labor as an abstract and universal category. In other words, it was an unanswerable question. Who or what is the political? Is it the action or the agent of the action? Is an action such as the strike or the fast sui generis political irrespective of who undertakes it, or is it the self, be it the ascetic or the satyagrahi or the revolutionary or the proletarian or the Dalit, which is what is political in action as much as in inaction. Now, Gandhi would, of course, argue that it's the self. The self must achieve a proper ethical orientation before it could deserve to undertake a political act. And communists would argue quite the opposite. Uh, so, that is where the question of action becomes, in some senses, a split question, an untenable question, which then later, I show, gets reduced to the body, to the question of no longer neighbor, labor, no longer action, but simply the question of bodily comportment and bodily encounter, which turns the problematic of labor, in some senses, into seamlessly the question of force and violence because it is about in a sense bodily dynamic dynamics between bodies which was the only way in which action could be staged as it were so that's the that's the uh, next two chapters as in the book yeah and then you know in chapters five and six you look at the history of another kind of constitutive idea of politics and politicization, which is the idea of equality. And you say 
You look at the history of the politicization of the idea of equality, I quote, in its circuitous travels through distinct spiritual, economic, literary, and social registers, uh, end of quotation. So what are the different meanings and contexts of the idea of equality that you're looking at? And you know, could you give us an account of the history of its politicization? So this chapter is, this chapter pair is very generally concerned with the question of the place of ideas in politics. And I take up as example, the idea of equality. And I argue that ideas operate in politics in ways exceeding their remit as norm and ideology, the two ways in which we imagine the political power of ideas in modern times. So I go on to narrate the career of equality as it emerges, cutting across ideological and normative divisions as a frame of legibility, as it were, within which encounters become negotiable across difference. In other words, I argue that equality from the word go is only thinkable in terms of equality in difference. A beat between colonized and colonizer, men and women, Brahmins and untouchables, labor and capital. But in the chapter pair, I also suggest, I also insist indeed, that there is an important analytical distinction to be made between a critique of inequality and the thinking of equality as a positive idea. So chapter five looks at multiple spiritual traditions that are mobilized in modern times to enable this transition between critique of inequality to equality as a coherent thinkable idea. So we see non-dualism, Vedanta, popular Islam, and a reinvented Buddhism coming into play around the question of equality at this time. On the other hand, chapter six looks at the rise of pure economic reason in modernity, primarily riding in the col- on, on Marxism and Leninism in the colony. So this this chapter then argues that even if economic reasoning did offer a stringent critique of inequality by virtue of its ability to produce a measure of equivalence across difference, it could make a transition to equality as a positive idea only via an overwriting of the economic by the sociological on the one hand, and the literary on the other. In other words, the, the, the purely, the abstract, purely economic reasoning needs to be re-inscribed in order to move from critique to thinking equality as a thinkable idea. So I actually end these two chapters on a provocative note by trying to demonstrate the unexpected shared ground between the spiritual and the economic in modern times. I argue that both the spiritual and the economic, as they mediate the career of equality, actually index not the political, 
but the extra-political aspects of material being, both claiming to be about bare life and basic needs, about existential questions that were both beyond and before politics. In other words, I tried to show via the career of equality how even Marxism needs to be re-signified through hybrid formations like Islamic socialism, liberation theology, and indeed the neo-animism of today's radical ecological thought. In other words, I actually end up saying, and I, I can be, uh, I mean, it, it can be a, a, a kind of point of great disagreement. I actually end by saying that equality does not ever become a pure political idea. Because while it grounds politics, it also shows up the limits of the, pol- the political as we know it. Yeah. So. yeah, absolutely. And I, I must note here that, you know, chapter six has been so, so very valuable for me and in thinking about my own work. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, because, I know we'll talk about it. Your work is absolutely. pretty much on that line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know we have uh, we have had the political man we have had uh, the paradox of politics and action and then we have had the idea of equality and then finally in chapter seven and eight you take up the category of the demos of people and you ask the question I quote how do a people assume form and presence uh, end of quotation so you show how the presentation or as you say the staging of the people rather than the nature determine the nature of the political. And, you know, could you give us a trajectory of your argument? Sure, sure. I mean, of course, modern politics is defined as the exercise of popular will, as opposed to the exercise of virtuosity in public life, as it was in classical times. Yet, the paradox is that there is really nothing called the people. There are monads and communities, classes and identities, friends and enemies, as we know so well today, strangers and neighbors, but no one people as such. In other words, there is nothing called a people until a people is named into being. Now, in modern times, as we know, the people has had various names, humanity, nation, folk, crowd, mob, public, mass, proletariat, multitude, and so on and so forth. Now, of these the nation has been perhaps the most stable, crisis-ridden that as it is, simply because the nation came to be concretized as a state form. Now, in chapter 7 and 8, the last two chapters of the book, I therefore step aside of the question, who is the people? That's not the question that I ask. Because that's a question that usually devolves into the question of social identity, be it race or caste or, you know, ethnicity or class. I ask quite a different question, which is, how is the people staged as a credible, believable entity? So I use the term staging quite self-consciously to invoke the aspects of artifice, assembly, and aesthetics that are involved in the act of theatrical staging. 
So, chapter 7 then studies the staging of the people as political party, which I argue the party seeks to become the distilled essence of the people in its purely political form. That is a form that subsumes and sublates the being otherwise of the people as population, society, community, and indeed crowd. And I also argue that the modern political party in its twinned form of the mass party and the vanguard party is actually the precondition of the possibility of the nation as a total and totalizing political form. And I suggest that thinking about the party, which I insist is distinct from the association, actually offers a very different imagination of the public sphere than the one that Habermas had once popularized. And I also go on to show how the political party is an impossible formation being perpetually subject to the part versus whole or the identity versus totality dynamic. But then, if the political party is the dream of rendering the people into a perfect structure without excess or remainder, fiction is the dream of the people in its perpetual becoming. So chapter 8 then works as a contrast to chapter 7. And in chapter 8, I make a strong distinction between the problematic of culture and history, which is about the people as identity, people as they are by custom and habit, and the problematic of what I call fictionality, which is about imagining and conjuring up the people into being. So in this chapter, then I go on to study a variety of short stories, poetry, plays, uh, and novels of the time, and analyze the figures of the literary ethnographer and the people's poet, in order to argue that the people becomes a credible fiction via the production of the right kind of atmospherics, charge, affect, uh, the word that is used commonly these days, which again is a question of staging. So I seek to disrupt the division between politics and aesthetics and set aside the debates around realism and modernism and so on in favor of what I call theatrics as that which is the ground of political community as a possible and plausible formation. So, Right. Um, just as a quick follow-up, could you give us a sense of, you know, what literary instances you use in this chapter? Oh, well, I use, I mean, there, there is, of course, a number of people who are by, uh, 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 by commitment Marxist or Marxist-Leninist who are also writing short stories, novels, uh, and, 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 and staging plays 
in the name of people's theater or people's poetry or people's whatever. Now, I show that whatever the... And, and of course, this in, involves huge number, hugely famous people such as uh, Manik Bandupadhyay, the famous communist novelist, but also, uh, you know, uh, the kind of non-communist uh, avant-garde uh, uh, writers like the Kollol group, Ochinto Shengupto and such like, and of course the theatre of Badal Sharkar and Utpaldat and so on and so forth. And I actually argue that whatever the genre in which people are writing, be it a short story or a novel or, or, or actually a play, all these internally actually create a formation like a theatre. So even a short story uh, for in, uh, or, or a novel, for instance, very, very famously, um, uh, uh, Bibhuti Bhushan's uh, Oronnobunhi, Forest Fire, which talk about the uprising of the Santals, actually creates a visualization, uh, a, a kind of staging with scenes and sets and a kind of a background narration. So I say that theater is in some senses the meta genre, uh, as it were. Uh, even though in Western literary theory, uh, the general story is that it's a move from classical Greek theater to the realist novel uh, as a kind of movement towards democracy. I actually argue in a sense quite the opposite, saying that that theatrics become a kind of meta genre for making the political community plausible. So that's the argument in the last chapter, as it were. I see. So, uh, and, you know, finally, I can't really end this conversation without asking you about what you're working on now and if you can tell us about your future projects. Sure. I mean, well, uh, I'm... So my current interest, I'm not sure I can yet call it a fully thought out project, but, uh, you know, at the risk of sticking my neck out, let me just say that my current interest is in writing a kind of synthetic account of political thinking in South Asia, cutting across the ancient medieval and early modern periods. Now, I do not see this as an exercise of long dury history writing really rather i imagine this as an experiment in thinking across across and that's the crucial word in my mind thinking across traditions and thinking across times across traditions because South Asia, as you know, has seen the confluence of multiple philosophies and idioms of thought, Sanskrit, Pali, Perso-Arabic, vernacular, and indeed European, across times, since I believe that traces of multiple histories and genealogies of the political coexist in our contemporary as co-presences and need to be thought as exactly that, that is as co-presences, rather than in terms of any unilinear story of modernization, evolution, or even transition. 
So, and this connects, if you, uh, if you have a couple of minutes, it connects to this current book uh, uh, by way of the fact that when I was researching the Elementary Aspects book, it was very clear to me that my, my archives were full of materials that could not be accommodated within my given modern-day analytical framework. So there was, there were a lot of insights and questions that appear in these archives, which we have not been able to read adequately so far, even if the archives are well known. Uh, because, you know, there are these questions and insights very often seem to us to be surplus or redundant or at worst, archaisms, having to do mostly with what we today call non-modern, cosmological, religious, personal, sexual, existential, and or psychosomatic matters. They do not quite make sense within our existing episteme. And I want to engage these quote-unquote excesses, as it were, without falling into the trap of reducing them to the to any idea of cultural difference. These are actually questions of conceptual differences that we need to really think hard about. So uh, any project of writing across tradition and writing across time, I think, can help us break out of our current cultural determinisms as much as political universalisms. So hence my imagination of a plausible project, again, I'm saying this very modestly and hesitantly, a plausible project that may take on board unlikely stories of kings, gods, and animals, of ecology and cosmology, monks and warriors, madmen, poets, outcast women, ghosts, all together as constitutive of the story of the political. Now, is it possible? Can, can one do this uh, a kind of breakout act, as it were, from the discipline of history and its periodization prison, as I call it? I hope so. And I think that this kind of a time travel may actually help us in thinking classical political questions together with futurist emergent questions, such as the salience of the non-human in understanding the question of the human predicament in the planet, and so on. So this is just, you know, thinking with you. Uh, that and, is a... And <laughs> That is thrilling methodology, I must say. It's, it sounds wonderful, and I'm so excited to read, whatever form it takes. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you so much for talking to us about this book, and uh, congratulations on its publication. Thank can't, you. can't wait to go back and read it again. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure. And thank you, our listeners, and hope you have a great day. <laughs>